Hockey players, as you know, are warriors. They don't give up. They come to play every game. It's time for Nightcap, a cup full of the Vegas Golden Knights. From highlights to interviews to special events, the puck starts here. From the Golden Knights coaching staff or a player, I'll talk to the guys over there, get someone on the show. I've kind of wanted to let the dust settle a little bit because when you let go of the face of your franchise, the first four years and the success they've had, Marc-Andre Fleury, I know it's kind of almost like a funeral, like a bit of a wake. And and um, you know, and also Ryan Reeves, a very popular player here in Vegas, as we mentioned, talked about last week when he first came here. Everyone was kind of booing and upset, thinking, oh, my God, this guy's going to disrupt the chemistry of this team. We're not a physical team. We're a team that scores goals. Well, Ryan Reeves was an integral part of this team for a few years. I know you shake your head no, but he was. He was great for the locker room. He was also really good for the community. He is a leader in the locker room. And on the ice, the bottom line is he changes the perspective and the mindset of the players he plays against when he's on the ice, Spencer, because he is such a physical presence. Uh, you know, probably that if you want to go tough guys or goons, the number one in the National Hockey League right now. And, uh, you know, that is a presence that people are aware of when he is on the ice that was missing. And we saw it missing in the Stanley Cup finals when Pete DeBoer kept him out, you know, scratched him a few games. You saw that, you know, it's just even though Keegan Colasar can hold his own, William Carrier is definitely a big guy if you've ever seen him up close and a tough player too. They're, they don't still command the physical respect that Ryan Reeves did and does in the National Hockey League. So it's a little bit of a step backward. I don't think anybody fears Keegan Colasar or Will Carrier, although they should. Will Carrier could probably kick some serious ass. But the bottom line is Ryan Reeves was a feared player and he definitely changed the way opponents would play against him when he was on the ice. So that is a loss to me. I mean, he's not you're not losing a guy that's going to be a threat to put very many goals on the board in a season but again a physical presence in a sport like the national hockey league is pretty important and i think uh the knights have some other guys that can pick up where he left off but i don't think he is replaceable considering when you say he's the top of the hill he's the mount everest of uh goons right now in the league uh that's a presence they don't have anymore but getting back to mark andre Fleury and doug if you could turn your mic on uh, over there and uh and join us in this you know something i had thought about this past week is so many people talk to me about this this is a subject that i imagine will be talked about, you know, pretty much through next year till we just settle in with Robin Leonard as a number one goaltender and Mark Andre Fleury departing to Chicago. But you know, I thought about this. You know, even when I said it, uh, you know, back a month and a half ago to Mike McKinnon, I was like, I just didn't see Mark Andre Fleury ever playing another game with the Vegas Golden Knights. But the one thing I thought about was, you know. You know, and I asked all the time, is this going to tarnish his legacy? Is that game three flub, which was a monumental flub? I don't care what anyone says. Yes, it happens. We all make mistakes. But it, he, he nonchalanted a puck in game three with a minute to go in a hockey game that you're winning, and it ended up costing the game. And ultimately, people can argue that that was the turning point of the entire series. So it's huge. But I was thinking about it. You know, it kind of, doesn't it? kind of redeem him a little bit or I should say quiet everybody when he gets traded because now all Vegas jumps on the Marc-Andre Fleury bandwagon everyone's like you know most of the hockey aficionados are upset about this move are hurt about it are actually hurt about this move which I really love because I think it takes the sting out of what he did in game three Doug your thoughts on that do you think a little bit by him getting traded it gives every something but something to complain about in his favor so 
you stop talking about game three and the fact that 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 given up goal could have been the turning point and may have very well cost him a shot at a second Stanley Cup finals in four years. Oh, Doug, you there? Maybe Doug will be able to cement his legacy any further. Sorry, I was on the air. I hit missed one button. Ah, a little rusty there. But <laughs> you look at some of those things and look at a player like a Tom Brady who switched teams and then won another championship. Uh, LeBron James did it. I mean, just recently, there's also Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I, that's going way back. But you're exactly right in that, A, I'm glad he's playing for the Blackhawks. Great guy. It'll be great to have Chicago come in here. And can you imagine T-Mobile, the fortress, on that day? But yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Change of location, that was a big mistake. I agree with you 100%. But I think that he can... And let's face it, Chicago's probably not in a position to win the cup this year, but even just a solid performance again will help cement his legacy because when you can do it with multiple teams, somehow to me that almost means more. You know, I, I agree with you. And, you know, the one thing I do like about the Chicago Blackhawks, and there's very, very little being from Detroit that I like about any Chicago franchise. But what I like about the Blackhawks is I've always loved their hockey sweaters. I think I think the Blackhawk on the front of their sweaters, the Black uh, the Blackhawk symbol is really traditional. It's old school. It's one of the coolest symbols, I think, in all of sport. I, I've always loved their jersey. I just wish it was another team or another city other than Chicago that, that donned that jersey. But, again, you know, all seriousness, I, I am happy for Marc-Andre Fleury. And the one thing I'm saying right now, and remember I said this, again, Chicago is not going to compete for anything, not even a playoff position this year. I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury would have to not only be lights out in goal, he'd have to skate up too and score a couple goals for himself. But I'm hoping that somehow there's some team that needs a goaltender that actually could contend in the playoffs next year that would pick up Marc-Andre Fleury. I don't see that right now looking at the upper echelon of the National Hockey League franchises, but anything can happen in sports. One day a guy's healthy, the next day he's out for the season, and that's professional sports. So I hope that Marc-Andre Fleury is in a position where the trade deadline next year because I got a feeling next year will be his last. I just do. Maybe he'll play two more seasons, but I'd love to see him get one more opportunity in the postseason in the National Hockey League to truly get an a chance to redeem himself. But I am happy that the, the original noise about the flub in Game 3 has quieted down to the outrage in him leaving Las Vegas. It changes everyone's perspective. They they appreciate him right, a well, right away again, and I think that that is really, really cool. And if you don't remember what we're talking about or why we're having this discussion, Spencer, I think you still have it. I don't mean to rub salt into an old healed wound, but this was the goal in question that until Marc-Andre Fleury takes the ice again will be the last thing that remember. Now, granted, he did play in game five, a performance I think he and the entire Vegas Golden Knights team and franchise would like to forget game five against Montreal, but people aren't thinking about game five. When they talk about Fleury's last game in Vegas, that'll be the one they remember, and this will be the goal. I would expect Price to maybe follow this one up the ice here if they get control. Lacing as Anderson got a piece of that. I 
think every Golden Knights fan, you look back at that game, and I think all of us, Doug, Spencer, I think everybody out there was praying after that goal that somehow the Vegas Golden Knights won it in overtime. I, I really thought they would. I thought they'd come through and win it for him in overtime, and that could be put immediately behind him, but that just wasn't the case. And uh, the worst possible thing happened with them going into overtime and losing that game. But enough of that. We'll talk plenty of Vegas Golden Knights as we talk about Nightcap. We have Nightcap on the show every week. Uh, as I mentioned earlier this morning, Doug Spencer, I'm sure you guys have heard about it, a very legendary coach. I want to say it's sad and a tragedy, but he was 90 years, 91 years old, and I'm not sure that any 91-year-old in history, and I'm sure there's a few, I, don't, I can't think of any offhand, that probably lived a fuller and a better life than Bobby Bowden. So, I, I don't think it's a time to reflect on the fact that Bobby Bowden left us at 91 years old of pancreatic cancer. I think it's time to reflect on an amazing life. And, you know, Bobby Bowden, if you listen to this little audio clip of Bobby Bowden, it wasn't about uh, we've got him in the locker room. Well, so you can hear him. But this one is is what Bobby Bowden had to say. This was with uh, uh, thanks to ESPN. But this is him and what he wanted what, what, what basically his legacy, I think. The way I would want to be remembered is that the boys played for me thought that they were better persons because they played for me. That's, that, that really sums it up. I mean, he cared about his players tremendously. And I was watching, I can't think of who it was on ESPN this morning, and really interesting, he was talking about Bobby Bowden, and he had a relationship. He had covered Florida State sports. And he said, you know, his grandfather had played, because Bobby Bowden, one of the things about Bobby Bowden, I mean, his coaching career started way back in, like, um, the. I'm thinking it was, like, uh, 1945. He uh, No, in 1949, he was a quarterback at Howard. I think his coaching career um, started in, like, 63. He coached at, it was, um, God, I'm trying to think of the school. I can't remember it now. Some small school in Alabama, like a junior college. But, um, and I'll look for it and try to find you that information. Uh, it was actually 1956. I got it now at South Georgia Junior College. Okay. He was also the athletic director, the track coach, the head baseball coach, and the head basketball coach. True story. All of them in his first coaching job. He went in and just became everything. But what was really cool is the person that was talking about him on ESPN today said his grandfather father had played baseball for that uh, for the South Georgia Junior College, right? His grandfather. So he went up to Bobby Bowden and Bobby Bowden actually coached him, his grandfather. And he told Bobby Bowden, hey, my grandfather. And Bobby Bowden said, we called him Itchy. And he had a whole story about the kid. Some kid that played baseball for him back in 1956. And he's got a, you know, but this is the kind of guy that I, I heard he was. You know, I've gotten a lot of opportunities just doing this on, on almost a part-time basis to interview so many people and meet so many people. Bobby Bowden's one I wish I would have met. The, the friends that I have that have interviewed or have met Bobby Bowden just said he is so gracious. He answers every question. Even when he's angry in the press Room. You'll know he doesn't like the question yet, but he'll still respond to it. He never walked away from any responsibility. An unbelievable coach when you think about um, 337 career wins, the second mo most in FBS history, 21 bowl games, second most, believe it or not, behind Joe Paterno. And he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2006. He coached Florida State for 34 seasons, Spencer, which is pretty amazing. And uh, when you think uh, he won two national titles also, by the way, 19 
1993 and 1949. But at one point, out of those the 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 21 bowl games that he won, at one point he won 11 straight. 11 straight years he went to a bowl game and won 11 straight. That is still an NCAA record to this day. He is a true legend. If you remember, um, we are Marshall, the movie they showed him when he was coaching at West Virginia, and how he helped out the new coach of Marshall after they had a tragedy. He invited him in, gave him all his game films to help the guy run the Veer, which was a simple offense. He was just, if you talk about pay it forward or put that term in the dictionary, I would think Bobby Bowden's face could be next to it because he always paid it forward throughout his career from everything I've read and heard about this guy. And it is, like I said, a tragedy that he's leaving this earth, but at 91 years old, and you said it when I when we walked in here, Spencer, today, that's a pretty full life. Yeah, so I don't have any like personal experiences with him, but he seems to have touched a tremendous amount of people, and you just have to appreciate guys like that because it's like almost a dying breed, which is kind of like a dark way to say it, but clearly this guy uh, was a, a touch above the rest. Yeah, he was, in, uh, and and rest in peace, Bobby Bowden. Uh, condolences to his family, but I'm going to smile whenever I think about Bobby Bowden. He just had his way about him, and the funny thing was, you know, as nice of a guy he was, don't think for one minute he wasn't one of the greatest competitors ever. I mean, he wanted to win desperately. Football was a physical game, and he preached physicality as much as any coach ever, and this is indicative of that. <laughs> On the first play of the game, show that guy what a tough day he's going to have. He's got to know that he's going through 60 minutes of hell if he stays out there. He's hell if he stays out there bobby bobby bowden used to tell his teammates uh, or to his teammates um his his uh players you know he would tell them he would say look i want you to hit him so hard that every time the official that they've got to, the officials got to get together and try to decide whether that was an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty or not i mean that that was bobby bowden but you would have never known it when you talked to him off the off the field a gentleman a great guy a, a great family man and his kids his his wife everyone just had nothing but great things to say about this guy and um he'll be sorely missed as as a human being but his legacy will live forever and uh, and he'll always be known as one of the greatest football coaches in history florida state they had their issues but every major college program has had their issues with some incidents uh florida state for 34 years considering his length of time there in his tenure uh they were pretty clean i mean as far as everyone knows like i said i mean they, they not not big big issues or any any uh anything ever bobby Bowden never accused of anything terrible, but uh, pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool a guy. And um, he is definitely going to be sorely missed. All right, Spencer, go ahead and do fact this. Facts this. If you don't like the facts, take your ass back to bed. Fact this. The fact there was more breaking news this morning. Indianapolis Colts linebacker Darius Leonard signed a six-year contract extension worth just under $100 million. This makes Leonard the highest-paid inside linebacker in NFL history, and it comes on the heels of Bills quarterback Josh Allen's $258 million with $150 million guaranteed in that contract, which is the most guaranteed money in NFL history. Spencer, help me because I'm not understanding this. It seems like too much money. I mean, yeah, they're both in their mid-20s, but really? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Josh Allen had one good season. And uh, think about it also this way, right? He's still on his rookie contract, so he still has another year after this. And then the fifth year kind of option comes at that point. 
One year he's making over fifty million dollars. I think it's nineteen two thousand twenty-five. I believe he makes uh, over fifty million dollars in a season. His six-year average is higher than Patrick Mahomes. I know Patrick Mahomes' contract overall is worth more. If you just look in the next six years, because that's how long Patrick Mahomes did not get as much guaranteed money. Nine nine million less, as a matter of fact. So I don't know. I mean. The thing is, you could say, is it a discount? But I don't think so. If he's making that much money, wouldn't you rather wait at least one more season? And if like he has an average season, then you can franchise tag him two years after that. You have a lot of flexibility. I mean, what does this do for Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield's contract from the same class? I mean, it's going to be it is going to be very interesting to see. You know, now you're getting an inside linebacker that's getting a hundred million dollar contract, and and I will tell you, Darius Leonard is no uh, in 2018 led the NFL in tackles. He has been a star since he's walked in the door of the National Football League. He's 26 years old. Looks like his best years are with him right now. Is still in front of him. He did have some ankle surgery that's a bit of a concern, but he's a stud. I'm not saying that I just you hear a hundred million dollars for an inside linebacker I know when Doug Douglas came back to Lotus after a little hiatus uh was doing a few other things Doug did did your contract extension look anything like that uh no but we also don't charge for parking here I think that's one of the big keys I mean, what do you think of this, Doug? I mean, when you hear contracts like this is in the the national, we're coming out of a pandemic where the league went an entire season with most of the stadiums empty all season, and here we are coming through with record contracts a year later. Well, I think the key was what you and Spencer hit upon. The whole thing about a rookie quarterback is you've got him on that rookie deal and you can build other positions around. And, yeah, what a heck of a discount. And let's stop this NFL trend of uh, the NFL asking for taxpayer support to build things, because let's be honest, there's enough money around there. They can do it themselves. You would surely think so. I mean, it is amazing when you see like 150 million, it's guaranteed money. I mean, guaranteed if Josh Allen breaks his knee in 20 places and becomes, you know, RG3, but worse, after the first game next season, he's still getting $150 million. That is in his contract. That is just amazing to me. But, you know, what can you say? That is that is the National Football League in the way that it stands now. We just continue to see it going up and up and up. Eventually, they're going to have to build stadiums. Like, every stadium will have to be like the University of Michigan, where you have 100,000 people that can get in, because soon they're going to have to do that to be able to afford putting people in. And these television contracts are obviously going to have to keep getting more and more lucrative every year. But it just, it just blows my mind. Like, I love Darius Leonard as a football player. I think he is a tremendous talent. I think he gives Indianapolis a, a fear of fear when you come across the field in the middle he will take you out he's got like 13 career sacks or 15 career sacks in his three-year career but i just when i saw that i thought a hundred million dollars for an inside linebacker i mean darius leonard is really 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 good did i say really good he is he's not ray lewis well i mean here's the thing and i mean this puts it in perspective and i think this is a lost narrative when the raiders traded away khalil mack for two first round picks they got killed for it but that big contract, now everyone putting in question Darius Leonard, where was the Cleo Mack questions? And his production has tailed off a lot. 
So everyone blasted the Raiders at the time, but now it looks like the Raiders probably made the right choice. And but I did they, Spencer? They used their draft picks trying to replace him. Well, you get draft picks for a guy that you use the picks to try to replace. I never understood to that. To a certain extent. I mean, there's a whole draft process. When you try to start comparing apple to apples, I mean, they got Mac Crosby in the fourth round who had more sacks last year than Khalil Mack. Or Max two- Crosby's the only guy in their defense that would start on every team. The well, other guys would go. all I be, mean, be wave hopping. You can't hit on every single draft pick, and you can't also grade something in retrospect. I mean, in theory, they got two first-round picks for a guy who's overpaid. Yeah. So it looks bad now because we have one of the worst GMs in the league. But I don't think you can judge trades based on that. I think the Raiders still won that Cleo Mack trade. All right. Well, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue with you on it. I felt at the time it was a terrible move, and I thought John Gruden as an in a com, an incoming head coach, all kinds of fame. I'm not gonna say John Gruden's overrated. I like him. I like his style. Players seem to like him. But he got a hundred million dollar contract. You know, if he would have thrown Khalil Mack a bone and said, you know what, I can probably get through my life on ninety million. Here, Khalil, take another ten and stay with us, just to make the offer and the gesture and sh- and seem like he wanted Khalil Mack. I understand we've seen his production tail. Not that it wouldn't have if he stayed with the Raiders either. But at that time, Khalil Mack was on the same page or the same pace as as you would consider an Aaron Donald right now. And, and that's what Khalil Mack was at that time. The Rams, you would have to steal and, and chloroform Aaron Donald, get him out of there, hide him in a closet for two years before you could play him. That's how the Rams are holding on to him and paying him. I just don't think you let a millennial player go as easy as they did. I, and, and, I, and I understand you're going to say it's not easy. It was a lot of money. I get all of that. I just felt it was a really bad move for the Raiders. And put it this way, yes, his production is tailed, but is the Raiders' defense any better now than it was then? Well, I mean, he won Defensive Player of the Year, and okay, they were still the what, worst defense in the NFL. That's what I'm saying. It's no better now than it was then. It didn't help, and it's not gotten better. And and Gruden, in a couple of years, is going to have to shore it up because I'll tell you right now that – that, uh, that that records of eight and eight, seven and nine, and even nine and seven, if it doesn't get you to the playoffs, are going to get old here really, really quick. Vegas has gotten a little bit spoiled, not a little bit, but a lot spoiled with the Vegas Golden Knights. Winning is now an expectation at the professional level. And right now there's an enamor with the Raiders. They played last year in front of no fans. This year they'll get, they'll even get a little bit of a pass, not from you and diehard lifetime Raider fan, Spencer, but they'll get a little pass from Las Vegas audiences. But if they don't start winning soon, it's going to get old here in a hurry, especially with the success the Golden Knights have had. It's become a little bit of an expectation. But listen, let's move on real quick. I did want to talk about the Olympics and uh, the women's basketball team, which has been nothing short of amazing. When you look at what they've done cumulatively over the last seven Olympics since they've won seven straight gold medals, and of course, Sue Bird and Diana Tarazzi were on five of those Olympic teams. The two of them both first played in the Olympics in 2004. If you want to date, that's the year I moved to Las Vegas. I think there was still one or two dinosaurs running around back then. And here they are. Uh, Bird is 40 years old. I think Tarazzi is a couple years younger than her. But this women's team, Spencer, has won 55 straight games in Olympic competition. I mean, th- that, that's ridiculous. Um, when you think of, of, of how, I mean, the men's team lost this year. That is all NBA players and the best by far in the world. And yet, how great of an accomplishment. And what's crazy is Sue Bird, who turns 40, I think, real soon in days. She has announced officially she's done. She's kaput. But when Tarazzi was asked, will she be in Paris? She says, ah, I like Paris. The weather's kind of lousy there. Uh, I think 
Diana Taurasi is going to try to come back and win a six-gold medal. Maybe to trump Sue Bird, maybe to be the best ever. Maybe just because she feels it's only three years away, not four right now. So maybe she's got it. feels like she's got enough gas in the tank. But how good of an accomplishment is this and how big of an accomplishment is it? This is the way I like to contextualize like how good Team USA is and just the women's sport in general. I actually made my name, like my first name in sports because I made a big video about the WNBA. Here's the reality of the situation. I mean, they're so young. Like the WNBA and all of that is like, it's barely started. 20 years into the NBA, Rick Barry was the best NBA player. I don't think that guy would be playing on a lot of rosters today. So what these girls realize is that now there is a real career. Rick was better than his sons and they played on NBA (laughs) rosters in modern times. Yeah. So like now that it's a real career path for them, they're like girls younger and younger are starting to get into the game. So the skill level is only going to get better. Asia Wilson, Agumba Wale, like these are the next, you know, guard of the WNBA, but it gets better. Like every single draft class, it used to be one or two deep, in my opinion, for the WNBA. Now there's probably like five, six, seven girls who are actually playing rotational minutes. And you'll see those start to go on Team USA. It's only going to get better. And obviously, you know, I have to appreciate Diana Taurasi and Subert who held it down for such a long time. But I don't think their streak's going to be ending anytime soon, at least for gold medals. You know, your winning streak is one thing because, you know, Team USA lost some games here and there. But they ultimately won the gold medal. They're still the best. But for Team USA, I think it's just going to get bigger because the WNBA is growing. And it's not as big. Well, the WNBA is also, like the NBA, making women's basketball a stronger international presence, even though women's pro leagues in Europe and stuff, they, they get paid really well and they go to China, they go to Europe to play basketball. And the WNBA is kind of an afterthought because they really don't pay the players like they do in Europe. But, you know, Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, did such a tremendous job for the WNBA, really putting it on the map. But I think this women's, what they're doing now, and now now adding the the three-on-three basketball, I think you are going to see it grow exponentially. But I do think these other countries are catching up a little bit. Um, But but it is a juggernaut. It was really cool for the Las Vegas Aces. Three of their stars, really significant uh, parts of the, you know, with Asia Wilson, as you just mentioned, of the women's uh, regular team and then with Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young getting an opportunity and won a gold three on three that was really cool to watch and Kelsey Plum man you know a couple years ago they talked about her not being able to score and you know she had the Achilles injury it looks like she's better now than she was before the Achilles injury oh yeah she's been incredible this year and she had that she's had a six-man role a little bit too I think she could average 30 points per game all these aces are having a lot of success everywhere else so hopefully uh you know, the team can also receive. Well, hey, Spencer, right now they're coming back. They play next Sunday as their first game back. The Aces are no slouch. They have the second best record in the WNBA. They're a half a game behind the Seattle Storm. That is an all-star roster, and they've beaten Seattle twice. This is a good team. They play the Mystics uh, next Sunday. I'll be their first game back, and uh, we'll get Bill Ambeer on the show soon. I enjoy the WNBA. I enjoy the caliber of play, and I'll tell you what, you know, there is some really, really good talent, and it's a lot of fun to watch. As you said, you get down to Mandalay Bay Event Center is it's definitely a fun watch and I'd get down there and, and enjoy it. And plus I, you know, I, I I just really like the whole experience down there. Good, good, good group of people. The media staff is tremendous and it's great. And one, you know, talking about the Olympics, I was gonna ask you, Spencer, a little bit limited on time, but you know, the Olympics, what I've noticed, like especially with my kids and the younger generation, and uh, I don't know if Doug Doug 
Doug feels the same way, but it just seems like they're not nearly as into it, even as I was growing up. Maybe there's so much more to watch now. There's so many more distractions that that's why, you know, the Olympics was much more of a big thing when I was younger because you didn't have, you know, all these other things to get involved in. But I watched everything and I still do. I still, you know, like like this year was really cool. A woman won the, the women's gold medal in fencing. That's not a traditional U.S. sport. And yet that was a really cool thing to see. And, uh, you know, but I, I'm, I watch archery, I watch equestrian things I would never watch any other time, but I watched during the Olympics. And we talked the other day, and other than basketball, you could care less, right? Honestly. It's not so much about caring less, because I, I like water polo. That's just one of my favorite Olympics. Well, I love sports. water polo, too. Uh, it's, it's inc- so it is great to see these athletes in their prime and to be able to do these things. But I've told you before, and, and I'll you know explain everything here. I, I think the Olympics is incredibly corrupt, and I just don't, I feel bad watching it. Now, That's I'm not the gonna... reason you don't watch the Olympics, because you think it's corrupt. The athletes themselves are definitely not corrupt. The com- Olympic Committee organization, yes, maybe boxing once in a while. I see some judgment calls, and there are judges that take a big role in a lot of these sports. But when I'm watching diving, and I don't know the technical aspects, but they're so close. I don't even know how I would judge it myself. But at the end of the day, when with gymnastics, with diving, very rarely did, does somebody win that I said, wow, that person absolutely shouldn't have won. The only sport that's ever happened in is boxing. And that happens in boxing in the real world, too. I've never really seen what I would consider officiate officials throwing games or, or being... I, I just haven't seen that it's, in the it's Olympics. It's not the officials answer. part. And well, obviously, it has been documented, A, that the Russians did use steroids one year and they snuck it and got oh, caught. Oh, people cheating. And then every college in this country, match. people have cheated. I, I can't remember now, but that also got it was very obvious that they cheated but they never admitted it so that's one thing and that's fine i think that again i do think there's corruption in all sports to a certain extent we all know the nba you know with the referee situation but i'm talking about the us gymnastics team like the whole sexual assault allegations that went down through there for like 20 years and that's usa which you that know, was you, that was tragic, Spencer. That was a tragic that. story. The Brazil Nasser, games. the of uh, you know the worst part is I was at Michigan State the same time Larry Nasser was there as well. Disgusting stories. But again, in all sports, we have these things, and and, and it's he not was protected by no the no. I, like story. I said, I'm not going to justify any of that. It, the, one of the most disgusting, repulsive things in my life. Like I said, the fact that the guy was at Michigan State is just so bothersome to me. It's not even funny. But but again. The games themselves, the competition itself, I love it. And Doug, real quick, I know we're we're a little behind on our log, but chime in on this. What? Did, how much do you, do you watch the Olympics, and do you watch it more or less now than you did in the past? Way less. Uh, and Chris Wynn just made a good point. The tape delay does kill it, so the time zones are kind of bad. But also back in, and Brian, you and I are old enough, it was Amateur status for the U.S., which I liked. I don't like pros being in there. And also, it felt like the weight of the world was us against, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union. And that, you know, it just kind of meant so much more back then. And thank goodness, you know, that hopefully there are still aspects of the Cold War around, obviously. But it's not, you know, there's more countries involved in it. So to me, it was it was confusing. I couldn't figure out where to watch it half the time. I did watch some volleyball because I do like to watch volleyball. And I did watch some basketball and a little bit of uh, water polo. But I mean, total, I think in this whole thing, probably less than two and a half hours of watching. 
yeah, I can't believe how much I watched this year. But then again, the first week of the Olympics was my last week with COVID-19. So I was kind of stuck at home anyway. So that did definitely play a part in why I watched the beginning. But I still find myself every night I get over from my office and I, I flip on NBC. You know, it's been on NBC. It's been on like four different channels. So you can see so much. Um, I thought, like I mentioned last week, I thought the men's golf was so exciting when you got, you know, of course, Andrew Shoffley winning the gold medal and, uh, you know, an unbelievable day by Rory Sabatini. But they have seven guys in a playoff for the bronze and even the women's tournament yesterday they ended up having two women uh compete for the silver and bronze that they were in a playoff and i just i really found it fascinating again some tremendous stories and i wish i would have written the athletes names down but you had one in cycling you had a guy from i believe austria that nobody knew anything about he was nobody and they you have the other teams competing and helping each other and this guy was a rider by himself and he escaped the peloton which is the pack early on he got his got himself into as much of a 10 minute lead and the announcer who was you know said to be covering bike racing his entire life you know and he was a bike racer himself was saying that this is the greatest upset in bicycling history which i said last week to hear a statement like that the greatest upset in bicycling history put that in perspective how big that must be and he didn't even hear it nobody heard of this guy and he got 10 minutes out and they couldn't catch me ended up winning by about two minutes but it is an amazing story and there were other stories like that as well of you know people that just all of a sudden show up and give their best effort in the olympics but it's a great story i do agree with doug i liked it better when you had the amateur status the only thing that would bother me well, and that's what made miracle on ice so great in 1980 but it bothered me because other countries had professional sports and somehow the russians had this way of where they weren't getting actually physically paid but they were living the lives of princes and kings down there in the ussr so they were professional i mean you know i mean there was one point that Tretiak was the best goalie in the world. There's no way he wasn't living like a king in Russia. But again, that did make it so much more special to us, to as a country, as a whole, cumulatively to win something so big because that made the upset so much more monumental. The same type of upset it will be when women's basketball team finally does get defeated one day. It will be that type of an upset. So pretty cool. But yeah, it, the Olympics really have gone backwards and it's, it's, not as, it's not as important. And to me, I just think it's really cool, the camaraderie of all the companies, the opening ceremony this year. Honestly, the opening ceremony I thought was one of the best ever that just Japan with all those drones. I don't know if you saw it, but they had a moon of drones above the stadium. It was one of the most spectacular things. And then when they had the, they had singers, John Legend took part in it, Keith Urban, and then they had a Hispanic singer and I think a, maybe a Japanese singer, but man, it, it brought tears to my eyes. It was like, wow, that was really cool. Kind of singing about the world and unity. I can't remember the song they, they did, but it was really, really cool and very heartfelt. But um, I do think the Olympics is sliding in a big way and maybe not having fans hurt it a little bit. I, I, I hope, but I just hope it doesn't. It's, it's a tradition in our world now, you know, over a hundred years of it. And it, it's about all the countries getting together and us being unified. And I think as, as we try to create equality in every area in this world, I think the Olympics are a part of that. And they're, they're a big part of like peace, you know, even though it's major competition, I, I like it, but I understand Spencer, there's no question there is corruption at the top, but there isn't everything. I mean, the biggest and longest standing organization in the world, which is soccer in the World Cup. FIFA is one of the most corrupt organizations that there ever was. So, And this is something that the world stops when World Cup games. You go to Brazil when Brazil's playing in the World Cup and you could probably 
you could probably vandalize every store on the main street there. I mean, nobody is out in the streets. That's how big the World Cup is, and it's run by one of the most corrupt organizations in the history of sports. So enough about that as we're, we're, we're getting a little bit lower on time. Um, NFL preseason, fantasy football, man, it's my favorite time of the year. I mean, I, I it, regardless of the fact that I'm wearing, because there's a little bit of pride today, is, uh, today's the second day of the inductions into the Hall of Fame, the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton. They had to start it yesterday because you had to induct all the, and it was a huge class in 2020 that didn't get to go last year because of the pandemic. So this year they had all of them speak yesterday. Um, Edron James, as a matter of fact, I think you've got part of his speech, which I thought was really, really cool. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest speeches of all times, how, you know, let's be realistic and in no way am I being biased, sexist, racist, you know, Edron James, when you, when you picture like the word thug or something, you would have looked at him like that. He was so far from a thug. It wasn't funny, but he had his gold teeth, his dreadlocks. So he was stereotyped. And yet, if you listen to him speak, he spoke fairly elegantly and he's a really good guy. Like he was involved in the community in Indianapolis. He was always accommodating to the media. And yet because of his look, he was stereotyped against, and he talked a little bit about that in his speech. They made him a 3-3-6 in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> My career started with gold teeth and ended with this gold jacket. Good night and God bless. <laughs> That was the end of his speech. And, uh, you know, started with gold teeth and ended with a gold jacket. I loved it. And, you know, he got a rousing ovation and it was really cool. Um, Edwin James, you know, I had kind of forgotten until last year when he got inducted how good of a football player Edwin James was. He was a really good player at times on an Indianapolis Colts team that was growing and getting better, but he was such an integral part of that team and a, an integral part of the National Football League. He was really good, and he was a good player to watch. And uh, the whole, the whole, it's so many, so many inductees from Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cowher, the coaches, you know, to the players. And and this year and today at four o'clock our time, we're going to get to see some more. And I'm wearing the jersey of one. Like I said, it's not too often to be that I'm proud to wear a Detroit Lions jersey. It's tough, but I'm proud to wear this one, and I'm proud to wear one. One that says number 20 and this one of course is 81 megatron kelvin johnson a short career which he'll tell you now and he's spoken about if you can check him out in his blogs and i mean he, he him and one of his buddies that he played college football with at, at uh at georgia tech are they have a big marijuana farm the guy was with uh the guy was a chicago the guy is his teammate is his old teammate at georgia tech played for the bears so they both made it in the nfl and they use their money to parlay he's very successful now in that business but he has talked openly about his disgust of the Detroit Lions franchise and organization and how uncommitted they were to winning that he had like five position coaches in his 10 year career. I mean, every year it was somebody else. And it's it, it just, you know, it just, it, it echoed my sentiments listening to it from a player, you know, Barry has even now hinted that part of it was the Detroit Lions at the beginning. He, because, and the reason that, that you didn't think it was the Detroit Lions was because Barry didn't go play for anyone else. Even when they finally gave him his unconditional release, he didn't, he said he was done with football. So you believed, okay, maybe, it really wasn't the Lions. Now he's even talking a little bit about how it is the Lions and Kelvin Johnson makes no secret of the fact that the Lions gave him a shorter career. They abused his body. They didn't help him out. And like I said, you know, five different position coaches in 10 is ridiculous. And what's amazing and Doug, I'll ask you this, you know, it's amazing to look at a guy like Calvin Johnson in the Hall of Fame, and let's look at this one statistic. Aside from all of the natural statistics that we look at, put him in the Hall, and the fact that I think if anyone being honest out there, if 
played 15 years in the league, that he may be pound for pound the best wide receiver to ever play the game because of purely his size and stature. He is a tight end that plays like a wide receiver better than I think any any tight end could ever do because he was the wide receiver. But with the, the amazing thing is, Doug, they want to say to you, and people aren't really talking about this, but how many players do you think made the Hall of Fame on a team that you played for for 10 years that never won a playoff game during your career. You think there's a lot of hall of famers that have that on their record, on their, uh, on their resume. I can't think of any. And I will say this, that is what, and I'm not a lions fan, obviously, but that is what is so sad that they had such premier talent. I mean, two of the all time greats and, it was just wasted, and that is a lost opportunity. And I'm sure, as a Detroit Lion fan as you are, that's got to hurt almost the most that you had two of the best players ever to come around and nothing to show for it. Well, what hurts the most is I've been on this planet over a half a century. I don't like admitting that all the time. Fifty. This will be Super Bowl number fifty-six coming up here. Up here, and in that era of fifty-six years, is what spans the Super Bowl era. The Detroit Lions have won one playoff game. I've talked about that. Tim Tebow has won. As many playoff games in his career as the Detroit Lions have won in my lifetime, and Tim Tebow has played more than the Detroit Lions have won in my lifetime because he's played in two. I mean, there's so many other statistics when I I jokingly talk about this, but it's repulsive that a team that's historic. I mean, the Detroit Lions were founded in 1913 in Portsmouth, Ohio, called the Portsmouth Spartans. They've been around forever. Granted, they their, their last championship came in 1957 when Bobby Lane was their quarterback, and it was called the NFL Championship Game, not the Super Bowl. It is truly amazing when I say that statistic to people. One playoff win in the history of the Super Bowl. People are astonished. I say Browns fans, Browns have played again in four AFC championship games in my lifetime. They've won nine playoff games. I don't want to hear from them. Okay, they have a much better record. All the franchises, the expansion teams that have come up after us, Seattle, Tampa Bay, Jacksonville hasn't played in one yet, but Carolina's played in a couple. I mean, this is ridiculous that the Detroit Lions have, have not even sniffed a Super Bowl in my lifetime. And as you mentioned, Doug, that is the second thing that pains me the most, is arguably two of the greatest players in history at their position. Statistically, neither one of them is going to get that nod, but Emmett Smith would have retired long before he did a Barry Sanders didn't quit playing after 10 years because Emmett would have never caught him. Nobody would have caught him. And Calvin Johnson, again, a career shut uh, cut short because he played for a bad team, a lot of injuries, but probably the most electrifying and dynamic receiver of all time, simply because he was almost six foot six and had hands of Jerry Rice. That's pretty amazing. And yet those guys have nothing to show for it, except they do have gold jackets now. And again, cumulatively, 21 years of football and one playoff would be two, two of the greatest players that ever played the game. It's repulsive. And I'm sure Chris Wynn, who's ch- timing in, him being from Detroit as well, he definitely suffers my pain and I'm sure echoes my sentiments. But uh, I'm astonished by that. Real quickly, we mentioned we were going to talk about the NFL, Spencer, and the players and the teams. Give me any news. You're the Raiders guy, and I told you you were Raiders. Anything going on that you've heard at Raiders camp um, that, that, that that's happening? Well, it's truly a tragedy. Uh, and, and this is gonna this is sickening to me. They keep promoting all these players like uh, Edwards and all these other receivers, Hunter Renfro, trying to elevate their status and make it a purpose that these guys are wide receiver ones when they're not. And uh, you can do post any Twitter video you want of them making catches, but when it comes to the Week One football, they're still gonna show that they're not. I mean, the, Edwards was a fourth round pick last year. 
Hunter Renfro was a sixth round pick. There's no wide receiver one for the Raiders. I know you think it's Darren Waller, but tight ends just simply cannot be wide receiver ones, in my opinion. The Raiders are going to be an absolute mess offensively. I think I, I I disagree with tight ends can't be wide receiver ones. I think they can, and I think uh, for a few years Rob Gronkowski was wide receiver one in New England uh, when they didn't have any Hall of Fame receivers. He's a Hall of Fame tight end, and they had no Hall of Fame wide receivers other than maybe Randy Moss if you want to count one year. But but I think they can be. But I'm not disagreeing with you. I I think that the Raiders are over pumping the players they have because they have to do it. They're getting ready to play for their first year in Las Vegas in front of fans which will start next Saturday against Seattle. So the fans will get to see what I saw last year, except at a full stadium. Um, real, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're just about out of time, Spencer. Uh, fantasy football, I'm going to just throw through quick questions at you. If you had your choice right now and not, you know, to pick any quarterback to start in the National Football League, who's going to be, who's going to start your your team and who would be your first quarterback pick? Oh, Patrick Mahomes. Okay. I know, I know. It, it's a pretty easy one. What about running backs? A little bit interesting. I know, I know we both think the same way, but the guy we're going to pick was hurt last year. And, but I do think he's still, because of his versatility and the fact he's an all-purpose uh, four-down back, if you play four downs, he would be my number one guy. But it starts to get a little dicey after him. And it's funny because if you look in, uh, if you look at, uh, like most fantasy lineups, he's actually the number two pick in the draft and somebody else is in front of him but i'm going with christian mccaffrey yeah christian mccaffrey uh he, he is that guy and he was healthy before he had his you know season injury so maybe it's a trend maybe it's not i'd still bank on him the guy gets the ball in every way especially for fantasy football i don't think there's any better value well they've got a lot of places have derrick henry as number one and statistically you can't argue with that but the one thing about derrick henry is and i hate saying this i don't want to jinx guy hasn't been hurt uh, as a running back in the in the in the not for long league, uh, this is the year typically after two great years when something happens. So I'm going to stay away from it, but I don't have to worry. I've got the tenth pick in my primary fantasy draft, Spencer. What about wide receivers? Who's your top wide receiver on the board? Mine's the same as it was last year. People argued with me all day long, but I'm going to say the same guy I took last year, and I'm going to say Tariq Hill of the Kansas City Chiefs. I think he is a guy that could get in the end zone and any given play from anywhere on the football field. He is. Barry Sanders is at a wide receiver position. That man can do just about everything. He might not be the best person in the world based on what we know about his history off the field, but as far as on the field, to me, he's the best receiver in the NFL. Yeah, Tyreek Evans is hard to argue. Tyreek Hill. I would say uh, Devontae Adams, but uh, with the situation going on in Green Bay, I feel like you have to give the nod to Hill. Okay. Tight ends, Travis Kelsey, is there any argument there? I think Darren Waller, especially because now the Raiders don't have a wide receiver one. Nelson Aguilar was one last year, and without it, Darren Waller might have more targets. Okay, and 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 since we're, we hit the skill positions, one defensive player, if you have a team of defensive, is Aaron Donald. Is anyone going to argue with Aaron Donald? Best best defensive player in the National Football For League. Fantasy wise, I would I would say probably a linebacker may have more value, but in terms of like who would I want to start my franchise around? Probably Aaron Donald. He's just going to go down as one of the and maybe Darius Leonard. I mean, I like you said, I'm not opposed to him, but yeah, Aaron Donald's as good as it gets. And what about all around defense? The best defensive team in the National Football League this year. Who do you like? Oh. Maybe the Patriots. I mean, they have guys coming back. And it's they crazy. Lot. You know what? It's a Spencer. That's a really good insight. I was going to call on them that don't sleep on the Patriots defense this year, but also don't sleep on the Rams defense. That team has built up around, uh, you know, around Aaron Donald. Listen, we're out of time. Aces play next Sunday. Uh, the Aviators are in town. Three more games tonight, seven o'clock. And of course, the Hall of Fame ceremony at four. 
I'm out of here. I want to thank Doug Douglas for producing again. I know Demond Cotton will be back next week, but love you, Doug, and thank you so much for what you did for the show. We appreciate you. And, of course, Spencer the Wiz Ostrowski. Don't know what I'd do without him. I'm Brian Felton. This is Out of Line. We will see you next Sunday.